0: Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Are your shelves sagging? Do you struggle getting boards flat and square with hand planes? Are you looking for the best plane to use on a shooting board? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 40 of the show for December 12th, 2018. Before I start today's show, I want to take a minute to thank all of our patrons for your continued support of the show. And thank you especially to a new patron this week, Gary Waskofsky, for signing up to support the show. Listener support helps keep this show going, so if you'd like to support the show yourself, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking, and if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. So not too much news for my shop. Hasn't been really anything going on. Uh, we got about 18 inches of snow here. Uh, recently, so I haven't even really been able to get up to my shop, Uh, but hopefully uh, over this weekend I should be able to to get up to the house and get a little work done on the cabin. Uh, We'll see if I actually get any shop time, probably not, but uh, we'll see. Uh, One other thing, this is going to be the last show of the year. Uh, We will be traveling over the Christmas holiday, so I won't be doing uh, another show in two weeks. I will do a patron extra show for the month of December. Um, but I will not be doing, uh, another show in two weeks from now. Instead, uh, the next show will be, uh, sometime in January. I'm not exactly sure exactly when I think probably sometime around January 9th should be the next show. Uh, so if you don't hear from me uh, with another show in a couple of weeks, that's why I'll be traveling for the holidays and, and, uh, Taken off the rest of this month, so we'll be back on January 9th. So I got a good bit of feedback on my workshop discussion from the last episode, uh, both through email and and uh, on Instagram as well. And uh, as expected, there are, you know there are a lot of pros and cons, and a lot of folks uh, you know who prefer one over the other, one option over the other. Uh, But I did want to share one response that I got through email that kind of summarizes the feelings of most of the folks who are in favor of the standalone shop. So this email came from Gray Keen. Gray says, unfortunately, I do not have the experience or depth of knowledge to participate in most of your topics and discussions, but I am a big fan of your podcast and I learned something with each show. I can, however, pipe in on the workshop discussion. I have a standalone workshop located about 30 yards from the house. It's situated on the edge of a wooded area. It's well insulated and conditioned for year round use. Truly a special place for me. The idea of a workshop below grade in a basement or in a garage makes me sad. I guess I could do it, but a standalone shop above grade with natural lighting is the best option for me. Regarding a bathroom in the shop, what a luxury that would be. I understand not wanting to tie into or install a second septic septic system. Perhaps a composting or electric toilet would be a consideration. So uh, thanks to everyone who who sent feedback. Um, and yeah, um, I, I do kind of understand that sentiment about the standalone shop being kind of the uh, the idyllic shop. And I think for for most of us, it probably is. You know, to have. This separate building, maybe on the edge of a edge of a nice hardwood forest or something like that. Um, you know, I think that is kind of you know this idyllic picture that we all have in our heads. Unfortunately, for a lot of us, it's just not an option. And uh, I'm going to talk about my decision a little bit uh, later in the show, so uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. But uh, thank you, Gray, for sending in that feedback. Also, got some feedback from Rob. Rob says I'm catching up to the latest episodes of the podcast, and I had some feedback for your listener from episode 38 who wanted more music in the style of your intro music. There's always the classic solo piano work of Art Tatum, Oscar Peterson, and the somewhat more recent work of Marcus Roberts, for starters. So thanks, Rob, for sending that in. I hope that uh, helps anyone who's looking for more music in the style of my intro music. So let's get into our listener questions for this week. First one comes from Jeremy Conrad. He says, I'm planning to build myself a Moravian-style workbench in the new year, and so naturally have been looking at a lot of workbenches online. One element that I often see is that people often have a cross-grain end cap attached to each end of the bench with lag screws. What's the purpose of that piece, and doesn't that violate the laws of wood movement? Does it have something to do with the way that force is being applied to the workbench from the vices? I see it all the time, and I just don't understand it. That's my primary question, but I do have two others. They're typical work be- workbench questions, though, so feel free to skip them if you want. I'm considering doing an angled leg vice on my bench rather than doing a whole separate vice piece like Will Meyer suggests. It seems like it will be handy since I won't have the vice screw in my way when working on the ends of longer boards. I'll still be doing the parallel guide, but I'd also like to have the option to kick a wedge on the floor to adjust the vise, which the original bench wouldn't have been able to do. I don't see many angled leg vices, though, as they're a disadvantage to using an angled leg vise. Also, I want to build a tail vise rather than a wagon vise. Have you ever used the tail vise kits available from Yoast on Amazon? I've heard that tail vices can tend to sag, but I don't know if that criticism is just for, is just of the all wooden tail vices, or if this hardware would sag eventually too. I like the idea of having that gap in the front of the bench for holding boards to cut my tenons, and also as an extra work holding option when I occasionally have visitors in my shop. Alright, so we'll take these questions in order. Um, so first, the end cap. Um, you can think of the end cap sort of like breadboard ends on a on a table or a desk lid or something like that. Um, I think a lot of folks, when they were originally building um, that style of bench, thought that you know the end cap is going to pre- prevent the top from cupping, um, resulting in less flattening of the bench over time. Um, in reality, it it really um, it really doesn't matter. I think what the end cap really does, it, there's two things that I see where the end cap is, is beneficial or, or necessary to some extent. The first is if you're going to put a tool tray in your bench. The reason for the end cap is to support the ends of the tool tray because you're going to have this shallow area at the far end of the bench and you need the end cap in order to be able to hold up the the last board on the bench that's going to support the far side of the tool tray. So that's the first reason for the end cap. The second reason for the end cap is if you're going to install a wagon vise in your bench, you need um, something solid, you know, you need that solid end cap, in order for the vise screw and nut to mount to and pass through so that you can mount that wagon vise. So those are the two primary reasons that I see for the end cap. One, for, to support a tool tray or tool well, if you're going to include that in your bench, and two, for the wagon vise. If you're not including a tool well and you're not including a wagon vise, then you really don't need those end caps. Uh, your second question on the angled leg vise. I don't see there being a real disadvantage. I think that the, with the angled leg vise, I think you gain the benefit of being able to slide, say, a, um, a case side or something straight down in the vise to be able to hold it for dovetailing or something like that, you know, something that's going to be longer than the distance between the top of the vise and the bench screw. So, you know, in a in a regular leg vise that's straight up and down, you could if you try to mount um, or, or try to grab like a long case side or a long drawer side or something like that in that vise, that screw could get in the way. With the angled vise, it kind of moves the screw out of the way and allows you to clamp. Um, that board vertically for dovetailing. The prime disadvantage I see of making an angled vise really um, is just it's it's probably going to be slightly more difficult to construct because you got to deal with those angles. But if you're using hand tools to build it, um, you know it's really no different than than building a straight vertical leg vise. You mark. Your holes and you mark your lines where you want them and then you put them there you don't because you're not worrying about building any kind of jigs or anything you're just you know sawing to your line so um, it's not really that big of a deal using hand tools with if you're going to try and use a bunch of handheld power tools to do it you may have to jig them up differently in order to do an angled leg vice so um, I would keep that in mind so you know just it might be a very very slightly uh, more level of difficulty making the angled leg vice but I don't think it's really that much more difficult. So I say, if you like the ankle leg vice, and if you like the idea of that, definitely go for it. Um, finally, the tail vice, uh, hardware from Amazon, uh, or any other, uh, dealer or, or supplier for that matter. Um, so for anyone who doesn't know what, what, um, what Jeremy's talking about, the tail vise hardware that he's talking about has a, a plate, a solid steel plate that mounts to the bench. So you make a, a cutout in the front edge of your bench. Um, it's meant to look like, you know, the traditional dogleg style um, uh, tail vices that used to be all, made of all wood. And yes, the all wood ones do tend to sag. But this one that you're looking at, Jeremy, also tends to sag. Um, I had one. Essentially, what you have is a, a metal plate that mounts to the front of the the bench. So you you make that that notch or L-shaped cutout in the front right corner of your bench. You mount this metal plate to it, um, and then you have to build a wooden vice around a steel core. And you've got you know these other couple of plates that slide in there that have got grooves on them, and those that's how the um, the end vice part slides over the metal plate. Um, it it's kind of a complicated affair um and yes they do sag so no matter what you do um that is that type of vice is going to sag eventually as well the only type of tail vice or end vice that i've ever seen that does not sag would be a wagon vice so um if you really want something that is just absolutely not going to sag then i would say you want to go with the wagon vice because that's not going to sag um Personally, my opinion, I don't like tail vices anyway. I don't include them on any of my benches, um, and I don't see them really as being beneficial in most cases. If you learn to use uh, traditional work holding, like hold fasts and battens and planing stops, uh, the tail vise really becomes unnecessary. Um, so I don't really see it as uh, as being all that useful. In terms of having that, you know, that gap in the front of a bench for holding boards to cut tenons, um, they, you know, you can make a separate vice, like a, a moxon style twin screw vice, um, or just put them in your leg vice and they, they work just as well. So, um, I don't really see any benefit to adding a tail vice to, to most benches. Some people like them. I'm just not one of those people. So our next question comes from Ben Ice. Ben says, I have two questions or topics I'd be thrilled if you'll address in a podcast. First, noting that I work only with hand tools and that I'm about two years into the craft I still struggle with the inefficiencies and inaccuracies of working my lumber from rough sawn to final dimensions. As you know, flat and square is essential to good joinery, and this process can be intimidating in anticipation of big projects. I was hoping you could give the audience your best tips and advice for this process, especially establishing flat and square. Second, could you tell us best practices for the order in which to cut and fit joinery? Would you start with the male component, the female component, when creeping up on a fit, only modify the male component or the female. I'm certain there's a best practice here, and I appreciate anything you can offer. Okay, so flat and square. Let's talk about that first. Um, I tend to work on on uh, my show face first. Whatever you know, whatever my board, whatever face of my board is going to be the show face, I tend to try and work on that one first. Now, sometimes you just can't tell in the rough sawn board. Um. You know, but I tend to try and look at the two faces and see which one I think is going to be the prettier face, and I, try, I tend to try to work on that one first. But with that said, um, if if I can't really figure it out or or if it's not that important, um, then I will try to work on the crowned side first, the bowed side. Um, now, before I start planing, it's important to note that I'm rough cutting all of my parts. To rough size first so I'm not getting you know a 1 by 12 by 8 foot board and trying to plane that entire board Um, there's a lot of wasted effort in there I'm gonna try and rough out my parts first so I'm doing all my rough cross-cutting and all of my rough ripping long before I ever pick up a plane and this does two things one rough cross cutting to rough length is going to take out um, any bow along the length of that board. It's not going to take it out, but it's going to lessen the impact of it. Um, so you're going to have let, you're going to have to spend less time planing along the length of that board to get it flat from end to end because you're constraining that small amount of bow to a small area. Ripping does something similar. It takes out or, or minimizes the effect of the cupping. So if you've got a 12 inch wide board and it's got a cup across it, But you only need a four inch wide piece by ripping that four inch wide piece out or let's say you're going to rip it oversized so maybe you're going to rip it to four and a half or five inches rip that out of the board first and that's going to um, leave you a lot less lumber that you have to plane away to remove that cup so once i have everything cross cut and ripped roughly oversized maybe about one or two inches longer than the uh, final length needs to be and maybe about a half inch wider than the final width has to be. Then I'm going to focus on planing the crown side first. So I'm going to put the cup down on the bench, and I'm going to plane my crown side first. Get that one flat, because by um, planing out the crown, the, the cup, by putting the cup down, it kind of gives you two points for that board to rock on. Now if, uh, to, to stabilize, and you're not the board's not going to rock as you're planing it. If the board's got twist in it, what I'll do is I'll flip it over, put the cup up, and I'll just plane the two corners where the twists are so that the board sits flat on the bench first. So um, if there's no twist, I'll put the cup down and just go right to work on the crown side. If there is twist and the board rocks, I just wanna take that twist out roughly first so that the board sits flat, and then I'll go back and start planing on the crown side remove the crown, get that side flat first. Once I have the uh, first side flat, then I'm going to plane one edge square to that flat face. That flat face and flat edge are going to be my reference edges, my reference face and my reference edge. Once I have a reference face and a reference edge, I can start marking out to do the final sizing of the boards. So after um, planing the face, planing one edge straight and square, now I'm going to cut my board to final width. Um, And I'm gonna do that by taking a marking gauge, referencing it off the reference edge, and then if if there's still a significant amount of material, I'll rip it with my ripsaw. If not, I'll just plane it down uh, flush with uh, the marking gauge line, and I'll have a second edge that is now straight and square to the first reference face. And that second edge, you don't have to worry about checking it with a square or a straight edge all the time, because if you got your first edge straight and square, by marking off of that edge with a marking gauge, your second edge is going to be straight and square to that same reference face. Now you've got two edges and one face. You've got a reference edge, the non-reference edge, and the reference face all plain, nice and flat, straight and square. Now you're gonna turn your attention to the thickness. So you can scribe your thickness, referencing your marking gauge off of the reference face. Scribe the thickness on all four sides of that board. If you don't have to plane to a certain thickness, then just whatever the, the thinnest dimension is, mark that all the way around on all four sides of the board and plane down to thickness. Finally, you're going to cut one end straight and square. If, if you need to, a lot of times I don't bother. Um, if it's something like a table apron where the ends don't need to be square, then I won't bother. Then I'm done. I four square. If I, if I need to four square, I'll four square and I'm done. Um, If the ends need to be square, if you're doing something like a drawer side, then you're going to do one end. You're going to mark that with your square, referencing the square off the reference edge, cut it, put on a shooting board if you need to, and then do your, uh, your final length the same way. So, um, Steve Branham, who, who used to run a a, a school, I don't know if he's still teaching or, um, up in Massachusetts, or, and he, uh, he had a blog uh, called the close grain blog. He called it the feudal method, F E W T E L face edge Width, thickness and length. And if you remember that, it it helps you to kind of get through the process, the easiest way, um, to process your boards so that you're doing the least amount of work. Now, in some cases you may not need to plane everything you know in some cases if i if i'm knocking a table together real quickly i might plane one face of the board one edge of the board and that's it all i need is one flat face and one straight square reference edge and i can make the apron for that table the inside face of the table does not need to be planed of the apron does not need to be planed it could be left rough and then the upper edge the the other opposite edge would be the edge that I would put up in the apron. Um, And after I cut my joinery, that apron would probably stick up above the tops of the legs a little bit. And then I would just plane it flush after that. And I wouldn't worry about whether it was perfectly square or or not. Um, So, you know, there's a case where I would really only have to plane two faces. uh, Sorry, one face and one edge. um, And I can mark all of my joinery off of that one reference face and one reference edge um, and I don't really have to worry about planning the other ones, but if you do, if if you are in that kind of four square or six square mindset that you need to get everything perfectly flat and square, which again, I'll stress, you don't have to in every situation, but if, if that's where you are and you need to get that, um, or that's just the way that you like to work and you want to make sure you're flat and square, you know, four square or six square, um, remember the remember feudal f-e-w-t-e-l the feudal method and that is uh how you're going to that that's how you're going to work your way through processing your boards face edge final width thickness one end final length um and again make sure you cross cut and rip just slightly oversized before you even start planing and that's going to help you Uh, help you as well because you have to do less planing now in terms of your second question um, which order what's the best order to cut your joinery start with the male start with the female it doesn't matter Um, i will typically when i'm cutting mortise and tenon i typically start with the mortise and then i make the tenons uh, after that you can do it the other way it's perfectly fine it's really just comes down to personal preference There, there i wouldn't say there's a best way Um, dovetails, I cut pins first. Some people cut tails first. Again, really, really doesn't matter. Um, dados, you know, there's not really I mean, there is a male and a female component, but the male component doesn't really require any cutting. So for the most part, you're always cutting the female component first when you're doing a dado or a groove or something along those lines. Um, What I would say is, is not so much that there is a best way to do it. What I would say is get comfortable, pick, pick one way and get comfortable with it. If you're learning to cut dovetails, don't cut them pins first, you know, one day because you read so-and-so's article and that's the way he does it. And then the next day cut them tails first because you read, you watch, you know, this other person's video and that's the way that she does it. I would say, you know, get good at whatever method you're going to choose before you play around, you know, with different methods. So if you watch, you know, one of my videos on dovetailing and I cut my dovetails pins first and that's, you know, you kind of want to follow along with my video. Well, then cut your, your dovetails pins first for a while until you're comfortable doing it that way and you can get results that you like that way. Then if you want to experiment cutting them tails first because you saw somebody else do them that way, then once you're comfortable with the pins first method, then go ahead and try cutting them tails first or vice versa. If you learn to cut them tails first, practice doing that and getting satisfactory results doing that first. And then if you want to try doing pins first, then, then give it a try. But don't jump around to a whole bunch of different methods because it's just going to confuse you, um, and you're never going to put in enough time with one method to to really be able to get proficient at it. And just like sharpening, you know, anybody who writes about dovetailing or making mortise and tenons or whatever, the methods all work. Um, it's just everybody has a different preference and and likes to work a different way. So, um, you know, there I would say there's no best practice. Um, for which order you should cut your joinery in Um, but you should pick an order and you should get and and you should stick to that um, until you're comfortable with it because by getting yourself in that routine and in that mindset um, that's going to help you to become proficient at it now in terms of creeping up on the fit or adjusting the fit again it it has nothing to do with only modifying the male or only modifying the female half of the joint. I'm going to modify the half of the joint that's wrong. So if a joint isn't fitting together properly, it's because something wasn't cut correctly. Um, in the case of a mortise and tenon, that could be the mortise. Maybe the mortise wasn't uh, chopped plum, in which case I need to adjust the mortise. Um, or it could be the tenon. Maybe the tenon was cut improperly, was sawn improperly. In which case i need to adjust the tenon so i'm not always just going to fix one or the other sometimes i may need to fix both sometimes i might need to fix the mortise sometimes i may need to fix the tenon it depends on which one is causing the problem Um, with dovetails it's a little bit different but similar um i cut my pins first so if i miscut one of my pins slightly Maybe I get the angle wrong. I don't worry about that because I'm going to mark the tails directly from the pins. However, if I don't saw my pins plumb, I can't make up for that in the sawing of the tails because it, uh, the, the pins need to have a plumb cut. So if that's the case, then I need to correct that miscut pin before I use the pin board to lay out the tails. On the other hand, if I cut my pins... Just fine, and I lay out my tails and I screw up cutting my tails, well, then I know I you know I need to fix the tails so there's it's not going to be the same every time you're really going to need to pay attention to what you're doing and focus on how you're you're making the joinery and get used to and and get used to diagnosing the problem to see where the issue is and it may mean you have to take a square to your joinery every once in a while to check did i make that cut plumb? did i make that cut square um, do i need to adjust that before i move on and in a lot of cases by adjusting it before you move on to the other part of the joint you're avoiding a problem that could happen later if you know that you miscut your mortise and it's not plumb, fix it before you cut your tenons because you can always reset your uh, marking gauge so that you can cut your tenons a little bit thicker after fixing a mortise. Maybe you have to widen that mortise in in order to get it to be plumb, but then you can cut the tenon a little bit thicker to fit that mortise that you fixed. However, if you cut your mortise and then you cut your tenon to fit that mortise and then you go to put them together and you find out your mortise is not plumb, once you pair the mortise, the tenon's now going to be too thin, and now you're gonna to have to not just fix the mortise, you're gonna to have to fix the tenon as well. So um, get in the habit of checking your joinery, and it's not a bad idea as, you're, well, as as a beginner, as you're learning, it's not a bad idea to check each half of the joinery before you make the second part of it. Because if you catch a mistake on the first part of the joinery, and you can fix it before you move on to the second part of the joinery, then you can cut the second half of the joint to fit and uh, and that's something that we don't see discussed all the time I know, but um, you know get in that habit as you're as you're learning to check the first half of the joint before you make the second half of the joint, and that way you might be able to avoid making a mistake on the second half of the joint as well. So our third question comes from Hugo Belargen. Hugo says thanks for sharing your thoughts on your future work in progress workshop your discussion was an eye-opener as I'm also involved in a similar process so please keep us up to date on your workshop decision and progress also since I'm work since I'm also working in a basement do you have any thoughts on the best interior insulation for us cold weather folks so as I mentioned earlier um, I did uh, you know make some decisions on what I'm going to do with the workshop. And uh, I am actually going to go ahead and use the two-car garage instead of building a standalone workshop. Um, As I said earlier, you know I I think the standalone workshop is kind of that idyllic vision that we a lot of us have of a workshop, and I could certainly um, see myself building a standalone workshop here. Um, However, because of uh, the so you know lay of the land, as they say um, where I'm located is, is kind of hilly. Um, there's not a lot of flat areas where we built our house, uh, or our new house is kind of the flattest area on the property that was suitable for a house. But along those lines there, you know, there's not going to be a lot of area around the house where I could build a standalone shop really close to the house. Um, uh, part of the problem is, We're essentially taking our house and putting it in the middle, not really the middle, but sort of close to the edge um, of our pasture space. Now we've got approximately 14 to 15 acres of pasture, and uh, I have a, a neighbor who rents our pasture for his beef cattle. Right now, because of the construction site and the way that the temporary fencing is set up, the cattle cannot get around to the other side of the pasture. So that side of the pasture has been unused um, and and ungrazed for a couple of years. Um, And there's also a small creek on that side that the cattle like to use for water in the summer. So um, ideally we want the cattle to be able to get around to the other side of the pasture. And in order to do that, I need to leave space behind our backyard where essentially they have a little, um, you know, a little throughway, a little path to get through between the fences, um, so that they can walk around to the other side of the pasture. Um, cause we are getting where we are, um, where we built the house is getting fairly close to the edge of the pasture, not the edge of our property line, but getting close to the edge of the pasture space where we would have to have the cattle, Um, where we'd have to have the cattle go. We really can't have them walk in front of the house because then they would have to cross over the driveway um, and that would just create huge problems. So the only way that we can get them around to the other side is around the back of the house. What that means is that I can't extend my backyard too far. So I really would not be able to put the shop in the backyard because we're just not going to have enough space to build another huge building in the backyard. Um so the other option that I considered was putting, if I'm going to do a standalone shop was to put it down where our current house is. Now the plan is to tear that house down because it, the foundation is bad and there are areas where the house is actually being held up by bottle jacks because, um, of some wood rot and some foundation problems. Um, and by the way, I didn't put those bottle jacks in. They were, they were put in at some point before we bought the house. But, um, You know, the the house really needs to be torn down. It has a lot of problems that just aren't worth worth fixing. But the thought I had was, well, maybe I can, after we tear the house down, I can put the standalone shop in the space where the house is now. Um, That would allow me to use the existing septic system for the current house as a septic system for the new workshop. Um, And I could actually put bathroom facilities in the workshop. And also, I could use the power feed for the current house for the power feed for the new standalone workshop. Um, and while that might seem to be an awesome idea, there's a few reasons why I don't want to do that. One, it's much closer to the street. It's not actually closer to the woods. Um, it's much closer to the street, and I don't really want um, a workshop, you know, in that in that spot. Um, also it it's probably somewhere between an eighth and a quarter of a mile walk between the cabin and uh, and the current house so and while you know I could certainly use the exercise, um, I know that there are going to be times there are times now when you know it, it gets dark out, it gets cold out, it's raining, it's snowing, whatever um, and I really just don't want to bother going to the shop because it's kind of a pain to have to get bundled up. Um, you know grab an umbrella whatever and you know walk that sixth of a mile or whatever it is um, you know from the current house up to the cabin or from you know in the case of of whether if i put a standalone shop here from the cabin down to the shop and i would essentially avoid going to the shop just because i don't feel like making that walk through the rain or the snow or you know because it's it's late and it's dark and i just don't want to be bothered Um, so i know for me even though it's not the idyllic shop, um, I know for me that the the most convenient location is going to be in that basement. So that's what uh, what I've decided to do, um, and the shop is going to be in the two car garage. And in terms of you know being in a in a dark space, it, it will be dark at night, um, but so is a standalone shop going to be dark, you know, at night. And in all honesty. The majority of the time that I get to work in the shop is in the evening, so all that natural light from windows that sounds great. Most of the time, I'm not going to get a chance to take advantage of that anyway because I'll be working in the evenings, um, you know. So, and in in the uh, in the summer months, you know, I can open the garage doors, both garage doors, and have plenty of natural light and natural ventilation in there. So, uh, I'm not too worried about it. I've worked in mostly in uh, in garages and basements my entire life, so I don't really ha- particularly have an aversion to it, uh, and I think it's going to work out. It's going to certainly be more space than I've ever had for my shop so far, so I think it's going to work out to be a good shop space. Now, in terms of your question on insulation, uh, what I plan to do in the workshop is to frame walls on all sides, um, inside of the cinder block walls. So I'm going to be framing up 2x4 walls. Um, On one of those walls, most of those walls will be framed normal with 2x4s in a normal orientation. On one of those walls, because of space constraints, I'm going to um, turn the 2x4s on edge, so the wall is only going to be, the framed wall, will only be an inch and a half thick. But for the rest of the walls... The 2x4 walls will be framed just inside of the cinder block walls. I'll put some Tyvek vapor barrier between the cinder block walls and the 2x4s, um, frame up the 2x4 walls, put regular R13 insulation in those 2x4 walls, and then put my wall covering on, whether that's you know sheetrock or tongue and groove pine or whatever I decide to go with. Um, you know That will go over top of the 2x4 um, interior framing. That's going to give me some extra insulation, some extra vapor protection, um, and I think it's just going to make the place easier to heat and uh, and keep at a, a decent temperature. Um, there are going to be issues with the air leaking around the garage doors, but you know I do have insulated garage doors, and they will be getting um, some good perimeter seals and things like that. So um, you know there's going to be some air infiltration because it is a garage, but I think by framing up walls on the inside of all the cinder block um and insulating and and vapor barring putting up a vapor barrier and insulating those areas um, i think i should be able to keep that space at a fairly comfortable temperature uh just about year round so Uh, and i'm going to be putting a a small uh, wall mounted ventless propane heater in there as well so in the winter months i should have no problems heating up that garage Um, so it should be a comfortable place to work all year. So our last question for this week comes from Dave Chalice. Dave says, thanks again for the podcast. I really enjoyed the most recent patron extra show about your favorite woods to work with. It was really valuable to hear about them from a hand tool perspective. Having worked mostly with pine and occasionally Oak, it was great to get more ideas for different lumbers. One thing I wanted to ask about was whether you had any advice on building wide bookshelves. I've been asked to make a reasonably wide bookshelf for a friend somewhere between three and a half and four foot wide, which will be filled with pretty heavy textbooks. Any suggestions on how I should design to avoid sagging shelves? Is there some rule of thumb on how thick or long a piece of wood should be to avoid sagging in the middle for a certain weight? Or is there some maximum width that is generally safe and it'd be best to avoid anything wider? Are some wood species more or less prone to this? I know a bit about the hardness of different woods, but know almost nothing about their flexibility. I'd like to keep the bookshelf as light as possible, so trying to avoid making anything too hard or heavy if possible. Are there any joinery and design decisions that should be considered as well? For example, adding some form of support uh, somewhere under the shelf, such as a thicker piece under the front edge of each shelf, joined to the side with tenons. Any thoughts or ideas would be great. Thanks again. So Dave, I'm going to refer you to an online tool known as the Sagulator. Um, so this was a, a website, uh, and I, I don't remember the name of the gentleman who built it, but essentially what it is, it's it's um, a calculator, an online calculator, for figuring out the sag or deflection of a given shelf material based on The shelf load, the shelf load distribution, the dimensions of the shelves, the method of attachment, etc. So um, you can input all these different factors into the sagulator, and uh, and it'll tell you how much it'll deflect, how much that shelf is going to sag. Just go Google sagulator s a g u l a t o r, and it'll come right up as the first search result. You can put everything you want to in there. With that said. How do we combat the sag of long bookshelves? Well, obviously, each species is going to have a certain amount of weight that it can support without sagging. Um, and that, that amount is going to change, not necessarily based on the hardness of the wood, but on the stiffness of the wood. Um, you know, there are woods like uh, like Douglas fir and southern yellow pine, for example, are quite stiff. Um, and they can support quite a load without sagging much, um, but there are hardwoods, you know, like uh, like aspen and basswood, that are, you know, they're hardwoods, but they are still going to sag more, um, you know, than a lot of the softwoods. So you can't necessarily go by whether it's a hardwood or a softwood. You really have to go by the stiffness of the particular species. In general, the harder and heavier. A particular species is the stiffer it's going to be so um, you are going to want to consider that designing this bookshelf with that said you can there are some things you can do uh, the first thing that I always suggest to people when they they ask me about bookshelves is to get away from the idea of adjustable shelves um, Adjustable shelves to me are are one of those inventions that were created they were created really for all the wrong reasons um, because most people set those shelves in a certain spot and they never change the location of those shelves so you really don't need as an individual you don't need adjustable shelves on the other hand, if you're you're d- designing and making shelves. As a retailer of furniture or a manufacturer of furniture that is going to sell your furniture in a big box store to hundreds of thousands of people and you have no idea how they're going to use that shelf or what they're going to put on it, then adjustable shelves make a lot of sense. But as an individual maker making a piece for an individual person who knows what they are going to put on it, adjustable shelves are a waste of time and effort. And they are bound to sag, especially if you're going to put heavy things like books on them. So the first thing I would do is try to talk your client out of adjustable shelves. Instead, design the height of the shelves so that they will fit the items that are going to go on them. If they're textbooks, well, textbooks are typically around, you know, all around a certain size. They, they, you don't have a big variation in sizes of textbooks. They're all pretty common standard size. So Build your shelves around the size of the books that are going to go on the shelf. That gives you options, because if you are not making adjustable shelves, you can take steps to make sure that the shelves are not going to sag. The two ways that I like to to do this, uh, my two favorite ways for making bookshelves that don't sag and will never sag, um, the first is to put dados in the backboards. So, and, you know you build your shelves. You put dados in the sides of the the um, of the bookshelf, and that's what your shelves are going to sit in, or the, those dados in the sides. Well, what I will do is also put dados in the backboards. So I'll use a solid wood back, like a tongue and groove back, to uh, put on that on that case, and I will put dados in those backboards. Let's say I'm using a. Uh, you know, half inch tongue and groove boards for the back of that bookcase, I'll put quarter inch deep dados. So that way, when I put the, um, the shelves in and then I put the backboards on the dados support the back of the shelf, and that's going to prevent the shelf from sagging ever. Um, the other thing you can do, and, and I'm, I also nail through those backboards into the back of the shelf. If you're using something thin like quarter inch plywood that doesn't really give you the option um, of creating um, dados in it, it's too thin, you can just glue and nail that plywood to the back of the shelves. Um, If you're using plywood, you don't have to worry about wood movement. So you put a, a bead of glue down the back edge of each shelf, you lay that plywood on, and you nail the plywood back right into the back of each shelf. That's going to keep your shelves again from sagging pretty much ever all of the other types of fixes are really just ways to give the shelf a little bit more stiffness, but most of them are not going to prevent sagging. You can put a thicker edge like a front edge on the let's say you've got a three quarter inch shelf and you put a an inch and a quarter um an inch and a quarter edge on the front edge of the shelf. Yeah, that's going to help prevent sagging a little bit, um, but not a whole lot because, you know, if you're you're putting a whole bunch of weight on there, eventually it's still going to sag. You could do as you suggest and put some type of support piece underneath, underneath the shelf and mortise and tenon that into the sides as you suggested, but then again you're losing the whole adjustable shelf thing anyway. So if you're going to lose the adjustable shelf, Um, and you're going to make fixed shelves, Um, again, I say just put dados in your backboards, nail through the back of the backboards, right into the back edge of the shelf, don't worry about the adjustable shelves, and that'll keep them from sagging uh, pretty much ever. So that's all the questions for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or top suggestions for the show, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can go to com slash contact and fill out the contact form. So today's main topic is on hand planes for use on a shooting board. Uh, it was a topic suggested by Hugo Belargen, and since I have some pretty strong feelings on the subject, I thought it'd be a good one. So here's Hugo's question. Would you be kind enough to talk in depth about shooting boards? Things like flat versus ramped, how and why you would use a donkey's ear, your thoughts on dedicated shooting board planes like the Lee Nielsen 51 replica or the Veritas shooting plane. What are the differences? And mostly, are they worth the cost as I'm thinking about acquiring one? So shooting boards. Everybody loves a good shooting board. Um, I'll be honest with you. I I have a shooting board. I don't use it an awful lot um, because in... The majority of the things that I make i don't find a need to shoot the ends dead on square um, I will use it for drawer sides if i 'm if i 'm making drawers um, and i 'm going to cut dovetails I will use the shooting board a ninety degree shooting board to uh, square up the edges of my stock for uh, making the before I make the dovetails but I think that's more out of habit because of the way that I learned to make dovetails more than it is out of necessity. Um, and I'll tell you why. You really don't need to square up the ends of your boards to make dovetails. Um, if you're close, if you saw off your boards and you're close, you're good enough. Um, the reason that most people will shoot the ends of their boards perfectly square before they lay out their dovetails is because they will use a marking gauge referenced off the end of the board to lay out the baseline of the dovetails. In fact, that's probably not the best way to go about the process. And in, and actually, uh, one of the, the top instructors in the country, Phil Lowe, um, actually cautions against that and does not use a marking gauge to mark out his dovetails. Instead, he uses a square and references the square off of the reference edge of the board. Because that ensures that your baseline is 100% perfectly square to the reference edge of that board. The problem with a shooting board is if it's off just a tiny little bit, then when you shoot that end square, it's going the, the end is going to be off just a tiny little bit. And then when you reference your marking, marking gauge off the end of that board, It is also going to be off, that baseline is going to be off just a tiny little bit. And then you're forced down the line to make adjustments and maybe things don't fit together just right. So in fact, the best way to scribe baselines is probably to use a square and reference it off the reference edge of the board in the way that Phil Lowe teaches to mark out the baseline for your dovetails. Um, that way, if the end grain is a little bit off square, after you assemble your dovetails, you can plane everything up and it'll be just fine. Um, but at least your joint then is going to come together square. Um, so that's one little, just one little, little piece of information there. In terms of shooting boards, so let's talk first about the 90 degree shooting board and, and about uh, Hugo's first point, which is flat versus ramped. So the idea behind the ramped shooting board is that it eases the entry into the wood. um, And and the, the theory given by many folks is that the ramped shooting board creates a skewed cut. The fact is that actually it does not. It creates the illusion of a skewed cut, but it does not actually present it does not actually create a skewed cut. A skew, skewed iron, um, like you might find in the Lee Nielsen shooting plane and the Veritas shooting plane, a skewed iron actually creates a slicing cut. On the other hand, if you uh, just use a ramped shooting board, it does not create a slicing cut. What a ramped shooting board does is just change the direction that the plane is traveling. So if if you can visualize this in your head, and I know this is going to be extremely difficult to um, to do on 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 audio podcast um, without a demonstration, but try to visualize this in your head as I'm I'm talking about it. So when you put a plane, regular old bench plane, on the shoot of a shooting board, and you push it forward, it's moving forward in a certain direction, and the blade it is moving in a direction that is 90 degrees to the blade when you put that shooting board on a ramp and you push the plane when you put the plane on a ramp rather and you push the plane forward the plane is moving the body of the plane is moving at a a direction that is not necessarily 90 degrees to the fence of that shooting board however the direction of travel is still 90 degrees to the edge of the cutting iron. So you're not moving the plane in a direction any different than you are moving it on a flat shooting board when you put that plane on a ramped shooting board. The the forward motion of the plane is still in a direction that is 90 degrees to the cutting edge of the iron. Now, if you are put if you are planing um flat stock, you might say, well, it's easier to plane on a ramped shooting board and the reason for that is typically on a ramped shooting board when the plane blade touches the um the rectangular stock, it touches the corner of that stock first, so it's not cutting as much material. However, once it is fully engaged in the cut, it is just as much requires just as much force to push that plane through um, as it does if it was a flat shooting board. To understand this a little better, take that rectangular stock and replace it with round stock, like a dowel. Now, on a flat shooting board, you're going to plane in a direction, again, when you're, you're pushing the plane in a direction that is a straight. 90 degrees to the, to the cutting edge and you're going to address that round dowel and slice off a piece. If you incline the plane, you are still pushing the plane at 90 degrees to the cutting edge of the plane iron and you are still going to cut that same round section of dowel because there are no corners now it's going to be the same, require the same amount of force whether you are on a ramp shooting board or whether you are on a flat shooting board because a ramp shooting board does not create a slicing cut. It does not create a skew cut. Um, so my opinion is ramp shooting boards really are not worth the effort to build because they, you really don't gain any efficiency in a ramp shooting board. Um, again, I, I mentioned earlier, I have very strong opinions on this. So a lot of people don't agree with me. Um, but I will stick to that opinion that a ramped shooting board really does not offer you any mechanical advantage over a flat shooting board whatsoever. So that is that that's point number one, flat versus ramped. I say 100% of the time, uh, flat ramped to me does not, um, not offer any type of advantage at all. Uh, number two, how and why you would use a donkey's ear. So A donkey's ear is nothing more than a specialized type of shooting board. Um, A donkey's ear is used for creating miters on on the long edge of a piece of stock. So there are typically two different types of mitre shooting boards. There's the the kind that we call a mitre shooting board. Um, And the mitre shooting board is typically used for doing things, doing miters, inside miters on things like frames or inside miters, inside molding miters. So if you're making a picture frame, your miters are going to be, uh, what we, what we call inside miters because those miters are the, the molding is on the inside of, um, of the frame typically. So you're creating an inside corner miter when you use a miter shooting board. A donkey's ear is a an appliance for creating a miter on an outside corner. Um, think about it in terms of putting molding in your house. Where two walls meet typically um, in a room, you have an inside corner. So that's the type of um that's the type of thing you would do, you know, what we would call an inside miter. And on a miter shooting board, you're going to use that to make inside miters for things like frames. The stock is typically held flat on the shooting board. And it extends, you know, at at 45 degrees to the fence, to the plane. And the plane rides along the chute and it planes that miter. In order to plane the opposite side of the miter you then need to flip the plane over and come in and plane at the opposite direction which is why a miter shooting board typically has a double fence 45 degrees on either side of the fence that fence is usually mounted at the center of the shooting board so that the plane can travel in either direction now you might say well all you have to do is flip the stock over you don't necessarily have to flip the plane over and if you're dealing with rectangular stock That might be true if your stock is very carefully prepared. Um, However, you would be violating one of the rules of using a shooting board. And that rule is that you should be keeping the same face down on the shooting board all the time. Um, When we're doing 90 degrees, we don't usually pay attention to that. But when we're doing miters, it can be quite important to illustrate that point. Let's put a molding on that piece of stock. So if your stock is not rectangular, now you're kind of limited to how you can, you can put that stock in the shooting board. Even if you look at something as simple as a quarter round molding. So you have a 90 degree corner and then you have a quarter of a circle joining that 90 degree corner. So simple quarter round molding. If you wanna miter that quarter round molding, you're gonna put the flat side against the fence of the mitered shooting board, and you're going to push the plane, and it's gonna cut that 45 degree miter. Now, in order for you to create the opposite miter that's going to join that piece, you need to plane from the other direction. You cannot simply flip the stock over, because if you simply flip the stock over, two things are gonna happen. The first is that um, you're going to flip the stock over and it's going to be in the wrong orientation. And when you plane the miter, you're going to realize the miter is 90 degrees off of what it was on the other end. So that's just not going to work. Um, the other thing you might find is that you go to flip the uh, cut the miter and, well, the you can't put the flat surface against the fence of the miter shooting board. Well, that's not going to work either, because if you try to shoot a miter with the molded edge up against the fence, one, you can't be sure that it's sitting flat. Two, when you plane that molding into the fence, you're going to chip out all of that molding along that edge. So the blade should be contacting the molded edge, the profiled edge, not the flat edge. So in a mitered shooting board, you need to be able to come in from both directions. Um, And that's why the plane needs to be uh, flat on either side. Um, And this is going to be an important point in just a minute. Now, a donkey's ear is used for making um, outside miters, typically. Um, If you've got an inside miter to make, like for a picture frame, or if you're building a desk gallery, you know, a fancy desk gallery from like an 18th century style desk, and uh, you've got some interior miters that you need to make. Your miter shooting board is what you're going to be looking to use. If you are putting moldings on the outside of a case, on the other hand, those are outside miters, and the regular miter shooting board is not going to work because a miter shooting board puts the miters in the wrong direction. Um, in a, with a miter shooting board, the um, short side of the miter is typically on the um, the profiled side on and, and, and that's what that's what happens in an inside miter and that's what happens that, that's what a miter shooting board is designed for to put the short side of the miter on the profiled side. The donkey's ear on the others on the other hand, is designed to put the short side of the miter on the flat side of the molding, um, and that is would be used for an outside miter. So, for example, if you're like I mentioned, if you're putting a molding on the outside of a case of a of chest of drawers or something, um, you need to cut an outside miter where the short side of the miter is on the flat side, um, and in that case, you would use a donkey's ear. Now, a donkey's ear is another simply another type of miter shooting board, but it presents the wood to the plane at a different angle. The stock does not sit flat on the bench top on a donkey's ear shooting board. Instead, it actually rides, it presents the stock, the molding, at 45 degrees to the floor or 45 degrees to the bench top. Um, So when you hold the stock in the donkey's ear, um, it's actually going to point down towards the floor at a 45 degree angle. Um, And then you run the plane in the chute and you can plane your miters. Again, a donkey's ear is going to have the fence mounted at the center. And that is so that you can put the stock on either side of the fence and run the plane in both directions. uh, Because you need to be able to plane into the miter and have the flat part of the molding Against the fence, otherwise you're going to blow out the molding and ch- and chip out all the edges when you try to plane it. So that w- that's how you where you would use a a miter shooting board versus a donkey's ear shooting board. Miter shooting board is for inside miters. Donkey's ear shooting board is for outside miters. Now this brings us to planes for a shooting board, and one of my biggest arguments against planes like the um stanley 51 or the lee nielsen remake of that plane or the veritas shooting plane there is a reason that the stanley number 51 and the the shooting board for the stanley 51 why they're so rare why they sold so little of them um and essentially why they're so expensive they're so expensive now because they are so rare but they sold so few of them, and they're so rare because they sold so few of them and they sold so few of them because they're not that useful. Um, you know i I understand um, Lee Nielsen and Lee Valley each made their own version of it, and a lot of people love the plane. My argument against those planes is that they are useful for shooting for use on a 90 degree shooting board only. They cannot be used for a miter shooting board, and they cannot be used for a donkey's ear shooting board. And I hear the folks out there saying, well, wait a minute, the, the Stanley shooting board, whatever number it was, the 50 or the 52 or whatever it was, the fence moved, and, and it could shoot uh, 45 degrees. It could shoot 45 degrees if you were shooting flat, rectangular stock. If you were shooting anything with a molded edge, you cannot use that type of shooting board because you can only plane one side of that miter. In order to be able to plane both sides of the miter on that type of shooting board with that type of plane, you would need two shooting boards and two planes. You would need a right-handed shooting board and matching right-handed plane, and then you would need a left-handed shooting board and matching left-handed plane in order to shoot the opposite side of the miter because in order to plane into the molding those planes just can't do it you cannot turn those planes around and shoot from the other direction they they are designed to move in one direction only they are right-handed the stanley was a right-handed plane uh lee valley maybe lee nielsen as well i think they both make a left-handed and a right-handed version um if you want to buy both versions so that you can do moldings, um, more power to you. Um, uh, but in my opinion, you would be much better served by a plane that can be used in both directions. So what does that mean? That means, um, some type of plane that is symmetrical on both sides, a regular bench plane. Uh, I use my, my regular old, um, number eight joiner plane on a shooting board or my, Number four, smoothing plane. I use both of those on a shooting board, and it works just fine. You can use a low-angle plane if you want, like the uh, low-angle jack or low-angle smoother. They work great on a shooting board. Uh, probably one of the most popular and uh, and best planes for use on a shooting board was the um, the uh, the miter plane. Uh, Lee Valley has a, a miter plane that they sell. Uh, Lee Nielsen used to make a replica of the Stanley, I think it was the number nine. It's that kind of boxy plane. Um, They are fantastic planes for use on a shooting board. All of those planes, whether low angle, standard angle, bench plane, miter plane, they can all be turned around and used in both directions on miter and donkey's ear shooting boards. The number 51 style planes cannot be turned around. And that is my biggest argument about them, uh, against them. So, to, you know, to, to sum up that, that last point, um, you know, the, the shooting planes, what are the differences and, uh, are they worth the cost to me in my mind, they are not worth the cost because their use is just so limited. And when I use a shooting board the most, is when I'm making those miters. I don't use my 90-degree shooting board all that often, but when I need to make mitered moldings around a case or when I need to make mitered picture frames or mitered frames for a painting, that's where I'm really getting the most use out of a shooting board. And with the donkey's ear shooting board and the miter shooting board, you cannot use the the quote-unquote shooting planes from Lee Nielsen or Lee Valley or the old Stanley one Unless you have a left-handed version and a right-handed version. And at five to $600 a piece for those planes, most people are not buying a left-handed version and a right-handed version. So I think you're going to find very limited use with that shooting plane. Um, It's really only going to be limited to shooting um, straight 90 degrees. So in my opinion, as far as I'm concerned, they're not worth the money. You might feel differently. Um, But those are my thoughts. You asked me my thoughts on them, so those are my thoughts. Um, So to sum up, um, flat shooting board, don't bother with the ramped, not worth it. Um, Talked about the use of donkey's ear, uh, donkey's ear for outside miters, miter shooting board for inside miters. And then in terms of a shooting plane, go with a standard bench plane or uh, like a low angle jack. I think those are going to be your best bets for use on a shooting board, at least the, the best bet of um, commonly available planes. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and for allowing me to do this. I'm extremely grateful for all the support you all have provided. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions, because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash HTT040. uh, In the show notes, you'll find any links that I refer to in today's show, and you can also find links to follow me on all of my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you'll find links to do so in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com slash support. So thank you again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.